so great to be with you this morning. Starting off our new year with a four-week-long series in the book of Jonah. And um, that means that for the next four weeks, your bulletin will also be doubling as an adult coloring page. And so you are very welcome to bring uh, crayons and markers with you if that helps you pay attention or just stay awake. Okay. Um, This is a great story, which you may or may not be familiar with, and it reads a bit like a cartoon, actually. Uh, There's a storm and a whale and this weird uh, plant thing later on, and uh, today I want us to begin in a little bit more interactive way than we normally would. Uh, On the inside of your bulletin, you'll notice that you have printed the first three verses of the book of Jonah. Um, I'm going to read these for us, and we're going to hear them a couple of times. And what I'd like you to do while I'm reading is write down all of the questions that occur to you as we're reading this. Okay? Any question at all, I really want you to write them down. There's probably pencils tucked in the pocket somewhere along your row. Here's the first three verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Okay, it's a pretty good start. I don't know if you really wrote down your questions or not, but I'm going to read it again, (laughs) just in case. And here's what I'd like you to do this time. I'd like you to pretend that this is the first time you have ever heard this story. So if it really is the first time you've ever heard the story of Jonah, then you are at a serious advantage this morning. Good on you. For everybody else, I want you to put yourself in that position. Pretend you don't know the story. You've never heard it before. What would be the questions? that would come up for you if you were hearing this message for the very first time. And I really want you to write them down because after that I'm going to have you call the questions out. So it's a participatory sermon. Here we go. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish, From the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So, if this was the first time you were hearing this story, what would be the questions? You can just raise your hand or call them out, and then I'll repeat it back for the sake of the podcast. Right, what was going on in Nineveh? What is so wicked about Nineveh that it's come up before God? Good question. Yeah, if you hear the word of the Lord say, go to there, what would make you run in the opposite direction? And it's pretty clear, right? Like that second sentence is like, He goes to Tarshish, he's going to Joppa, he's going to Tarshish, he's going to Tarshish again, just away, away, away from the presence of the Lord. Why is he running away? Amanda. Oh, yeah, why does God pick Jonah? Who is Jonah anyway, since we've never heard this story before? Amanda. Amanda. 
I know. Where does he think he's going to go? That God is not going to be able to find him. Yeah. I know, right? That's such a great question. How, what, what does that mean? He heard the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to him. How did it come to him? How did he hear it? Was he familiar with it? Did he know? That's good. Any other questions out there? Yeah. Yeah, how do you cry out against a sin? That's a great question. Good. Yes. Oh, this is a very active group here. Okay, yeah. Uh-huh. That's great. Why is Tarshish the place, place he's going to run to? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, don't give away the story because the fish belly isn't here yet. But we're coming to that. There's a fish in a minute. Yeah, why is that the solution? Right? That's a good question. Okay, yeah, last one. Here we go. I know. I know. Why does God care about Nineveh? Like, what is it about Nineveh that has raised it up in front of God? Good questions. Okay, I'm going to answer a few of those, but I just want to identify a couple of the critical questions. Like, in any Bible story, there's always a couple of critical questions. Like you have to answer those if you're going to understand why the story exists. And they're the ones that like make it fun to read, right? Like you wouldn't want to read a boring story. So there's some questions that create tension. What are those? The critical questions here, I think, are why is God concerned about Nineveh? Like what is it about that place that has God so concerned? And then maybe more importantly, Why does Jonah run? When God gives you a direct order, why does Jonah run away from God? So those are the critical questions. We'll hold on to those, and we'll do a little bit of context. Somebody asked, who is Jonah anyway? Why did God pick him? Well, there's not that much information. <laughs> there's, um, Jonah is a prophet, and there's one other story about him in 2 Kings 14. And that's, in that story, he brings a word to God's people that comes to pass. Like what he says is going to happen does happen, which is important because prophets are judged based on whether their words come true. <laughs> and so what we know is that Jonah is a reliable and a trusted prophet. Um, somebody asked, like, where is Nineveh and where is Tarshish? So here's a little map for you coming up on the screen in a second. Um, so you can see Nineveh. Yeah, okay, that's right. It's funny already. Okay, you can see Nineveh on the side. You can see Joppa where he leaves from. And what you'll notice is that if Jonah is standing in Joppa, Nineveh is 550 miles in one direction and Tarshish 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. So, I mean, basically what we know from this map is that when God says, I'd like you to go over here, Jonah just makes an about face and goes as far and as fast as he can in the opposite direction. He wants nothing to do with Nineveh. Which, of course, begs the question, what is going on in Nineveh? So Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, and Assyria is um, the superpower of its day, a historical enemy of God's people. Nobody can stand against Assyria's military. I mean, the way that a country became a superpower then, and probably still now, 
is through the military. And so it's war and violence and torture and terror. That's what they're spreading as their empire grows. So there are stories about the kings in Nineveh coming home after battle with the severed head of a king that they've conquered, putting it on a stick and raising it up at the victory banquet as a way to celebrate. So that is some kind of decoration, right? Like that's, that's intense. It sends a message. It's a violent and feared city. Now, our most critical question is, why does Jonah run? And so given what, you know, we've just talked about little pieces of the context and what's going on in Nineveh, um, what do you think? Why does Jonah run? Let's have, let's have a couple of guesses. From fear, yes. I would think that that thinking about, you know, the enemy's king's head on a stick would cause fear (laughs) in Jonah, for sure. Totally, right. So that is an enemy of his people. And so there is going to be some resistance right up front. He's not going to want to go to them. I mean, I just think it must occur to him that he's going to get eaten alive there. Like they're going to just rip him to shreds if he goes. So since this is our first week in the story, I'm going to show you a quick video that gives you, like, it gives gives you the kids' version of the whole rest of the story. Uh, And then you'll you'll have the whole book in mind. But while we're watching this, keep that question in mind, why does Jonah run? Let's watch this video. God's story, Jonah. So part of God's story is in the book of Jonah, and it begins like this. God told Jonah, go to the city of Nineveh and tell the people they have been wicked, and they should stop being wicked, or I will destroy them. But Jonah got scared and decided to go to the city of Tarshish by boat. Tarshish is in the opposite direction of where God wanted Jonah to go. Can you imagine running away from God? Anyway, when the boat was at sea, God sent a storm. The storm was so scary that all the sailors thought the ship was going to be destroyed. So they threw a bunch of stuff off the ship. I don't know how less luggage was going to help, but that's what they did. While all of this was happening, Jonah was inside the ship sleeping. The captain saw him and said, How can you sleep right now? Pray to your God and ask for help. Then the sailors decided to cast lots to find out who was responsible for the storm. Casting lots is a lot like the lottery. Except when lots are cast, whoever wins doesn't always really win. Like this time, when the lot fell to Jonah. The sailors asked him what he had done to cause the storm, and what they should do to make it stop. Jonah said, pick me up and throw me into the sea. That will calm the storm. But the sailors didn't want to. They tried really hard to row back to shore, but the ship just didn't go anywhere. So the sailors apologized to God for throwing Jonah overboard. And then they threw him overboard. I don't know if they ever apologized to Jonah, but God is the one who made the scary storm. And if you're going to apologize to anyone, you should apologize to God. It's just a good idea in general. So as soon as Jonah was off the boat, the storm stopped. I wonder if Jonah thought to himself, what am I going to do now? Well, God had an answer. All of a sudden, a big fish swallowed Jonah. Yep, Jonah was now inside a fish. 
things went from bad to worse real quick. Now, the Bible says a fish swallowed Jonah. We don't know if it was a whale or something else. But whatever it was, it had to be big enough to swallow a man whole without having to chew. Kids, always chew your food before swallowing. You're not a giant fish. Anyway, Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. Can you imagine being stuck in a dark and stinky place for three days straight? Like a porta potty? Well, imagine being inside a big fish. Dark and sloshy and really stinky. Basically, a porta potty with fins. After the three stinky days, God made the fish spit out Jonah. Actually, fish can't really spit. Jonah got vomited out. Vomit is also known as puke, barf, hurl, oatmeal seconds, upchuck, blown grits, ralph, toss cookies, technicolor yawn, and chunder. Basically, the fish got rid of Jonah through its mouth. Do you get the idea? So while stinky Jonah was there on the beach, God told him a second time to go to Nineveh and tell the people to stop being wicked. This time, Jonah went to Nineveh. Listening to God is always a good idea. When he arrived, he told the people that God said they should turn from their evil ways. They believed him, so everyone, and I mean everyone, fasted and put on sackcloth. Fasting is when you don't eat and pray really, really hard. Putting on a sackcloth is putting on a sackcloth. Now, when God saw how they had stopped doing bad things and were really sorry, he decided not to destroy them. And that's the book of Jonah. So in case you missed it, here's the quick version. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah ran away on a boat. Jonah got thrown off the boat to stop a storm. Fish swallowed Jonah. Three days later, fish threw up Jonah. Jonah told people at Nineveh to stop being wicked and they stopped. God didn't destroy them. And that's a part of God's story. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, this is such a weird story, right? It's so strange and fascinating. Like, I love that what it tells us about how much power God has over all of the pieces of creation. To be able to make a storm come up and stop, a fish swallow him, and then the opposite of that. Um, but what I found so interesting as I was watching videos this week, trying to find one that would show us the whole story in three minutes, right? Um, Every video ends at exactly this spot. It just ends when the city repents, which is the end of chapter 3, which is fine, except that Jonah has four chapters. And so they just don't deal with chapter 4 at all. And it's too bad because at this point in the story, we still really don't know why Jonah ran. So we're going to read the very end of chapter 3 and the start of chapter 4 together. Here we go. When God saw what they did, the Ninevites, how they had turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. That's what we saw in the video. We see the people repent, and God change his mind and forgive them, and that's good stuff. Here's what comes next. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
just a little twist in our story. Why was Jonah running? He runs because he knows that God is gracious, and he does not want Nineveh to be let off the hook. He wants those guys to get punished, and he knows that God is regularly gracious and kind and forgiving. And it's not what Nineveh deserves. I don't know, maybe that's why chapter 4 gets left out of all the videos, because it turns out that Jonah's kind of a jerk. right? And then actually he's kind of a drama queen. Like it really gets strange after this. Jonah like throws this tantrum and God, if it was my video, God would have like Morgan Freeman's voice. So um, he, God says, is it right for you to be angry? I can't actually do Morgan Freeman. Is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah goes storming out of the city. He just stomps off and he sits down in the desert to watch and see what happens. And while he's out there, it gets hot. The sun comes up, it gets really hot. Midday sun in the Middle Eastern desert is a kind of heat that I could not have imagined until I visited uh, Jordan in uh, the summer. It is so hot. I can't, I can't describe it to you. It's hot like you, you can't sweat and you can't breathe. It's just unimaginably dry and hot. And so God appoints this plant, like this very quick growing plant grows up over top of Jonah and shades him from the sun. And Jonah is so happy and he comes to love the plant. Just love it. And so God appoints a worm that comes along and eats the plant and just like eats all the way up through it. And the thing dies overnight. It grew up overnight, died overnight. And it's hot again. And Jonah feels faint. And he asks God to die. And God, Morgan Freeman says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, yes, angry enough to die. (laughs) Good. Okay. I want to pause for a moment for confession time and tell you that I really understand the deep and odd love of plants. Like I have tons of house plants and when I moved from Ontario, from Kingston, Ontario out to Halifax, Nova Scotia, we, I moved in December and it was so cold. I filled my car with house plants and I was super careful, right? I packed some of them in coolers to stabilize the temperature and I phoned ahead to all the B&Bs to make sure it was okay if we brought them inside. You know, do they mind if I moved 30 house plants into the lobby overnight so they didn't freeze in the car? And they made it all the way to Nova Scotia safe and sound. And then while we were bringing the stuff from my, like, we're loading my apartment, uh, somebody left the car door open for like 10 minutes and all the plants died. <laughs> Like we moved them in and I can see that something's wrong. And then overnight, all the leaves fell off. They just like flash froze and all the leaves fell off. And I did not handle that very well. I was furious. Like my two best friends, dear, dear friends, who've just made a 27-hour car drive, car ride with me so that they can help me unpack my new house. We're unpacking and I am so angry. I'm just storming around my apartment and I'm snapping their heads off and I'm rude because I'm angry about the plants. The plants. So I am very sympathetic to Jonah in this moment. Well, God uses it as a visual aid. He says to Jonah, you are concerned for the plant 
that you didn't work for and you didn't grow. It came up in a night, it died in a night, and yet you love it. Shouldn't I be just as concerned about Nineveh, that city, in which there are 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left? They don't know right from wrong. Ugh, I hate this question, right? It's like a knife in the gut kind of question. You love your little plant, your little plant so much. Isn't it right to be concerned for a whole city of people who are headed towards destruction? Okay. See, God is always like this. He's always concerned with people and that they find life. In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is another prophet. God explains it this way. As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from their ways and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why would you die? God doesn't send prophets to bring doom or judgment on a group of people. It's not like that. He sends prophets to warn people that they are on a path that is leading towards destruction, but there's life if they would turn around. And that's never an easy message for a prophet. The woman who mentored me said, you know, anybody who really has the true spiritual gift of prophecy, they will not be bragging about that because it's not a fun gift. Nobody likes to hear a prophet come and say, you are headed to destruction and you need to change. Sometimes we're asked to bring the word of God to people who we don't like and who we wish God wouldn't love. Does everyone deserve forgiveness? Everyone? In June, I was in Jordan with a group of students. There we are. And uh, we thought that we would be meeting Syrian refugee families while we were there. But the very first day, we were split into groups of two or three, and we were sent out to visit Iraqi families. Now, all Iraqi families in Jordan are Christian people. Um, These are two of them. Basim is in the middle and his daughter Rita on the very end. All Iraqi families who live in Jordan are Christian families because it's the Christians who are being forced out of the city by ISIS, an extremist Muslim group. They're not forcing Muslim Iraqis to leave, only Christians. And every family told us a horror story. They were, by and large, middle-class families. Uh, You know, Basim was a journalist and a lawyer. They owned their homes, their cars, their businesses. Their children went to university. They had savings. And what happened is that in their towns and neighborhoods, they would start to hear rumors that ISIS was coming closer to that area. So they would get text messages or phone calls from friends, sometimes from the police, telling them that it was time to go. Or scouts from the ISIS group would start coming through and their houses and businesses would get marked with the symbol. Um, this is, it's a letter, and the letter is called Noon, and uh, it means Christian. It's the symbol that they use to talk about Christians. So scouts would come through and mark the walls of houses and businesses, 
And then when the army proper came through, that's how they would know which houses to take over and which businesses to burn. So the fortunate ones had some warning and were able to liquefy their assets, sell things off so that they had some money when they ran. And they're using their savings now to rent these small apartments in Jordan while they wait uh, to have their refugee claims accepted by another country. When I was there um, in June, Australia had just opened its borders to Iraqis, and they were the only country in the world willing to accept Iraqi refugees. Everyone I met had lost at least one family member on that trip. Someone told me about their three-year-old nephew who just, he just fell off a balcony in a shelter where they were staying on the way and died. Terrible, terrible suffering was normal. And for my team, the most challenging thing that we encountered was that as we asked questions of the people we met, we discovered a profoundly anti-Muslim thread among Iraqi Christians. People would say things like, why is Canada allowing Muslims to come in but not Christians? And when I asked how, to, how I could pray for one family, the mother said, um, don't worry about us. You have just allowed 25,000 bombs to come into your country, and in 15 years Canada is going to be in the same place Iraq is now, and so I'll be the one praying for you. And I mean... Canada had just worked hard to resettle 25,000 Syrian refugees, and we were so proud of that. Are We are so proud of that. And I had no idea that in doing that, uh, we had also, our government had also put on hold indefinitely all other refugee claims to be able to have the resources to process the Syrian claims. None of my training had prepared me for those kinds of conversations and that kind of hostility. But I could understand it. One man told me that um, his wife and three daughters were raped and then murdered in front of him, and then he thought that the soldiers would kill him too, but they didn't. They let him go because they wanted him to live with that memory. And so when that is your only experience of a people group, you hate them. When that's your only experience of Muslims, you hate them. And when our students, my Canadian students, would come back from these visits to families, I mean, they were a total wreck. Uh, Some of them would be out seven or eight hours a day visiting families and hearing these same kinds of stories the same hostility over and over again. And so we sat them down in this little apartment to debrief, and they were really mad, really mad. Josh, who was 19, he was probably the most vocal. He doesn't look very mad there. Um, This is Josh in the middle. He said, what I don't understand is how all these people can call themselves Christians if they're going to be so set on hating people. That is not what I learned it means to be a Christian. Christians are supposed to love everyone no matter what. And everyone I met today, they just hate Muslims. That's horrible. I don't even know how they're really Christians. Now, Josh is 19 years old, and it was his first time in another culture. So I don't want you to think poorly of him. He learned a lot on that trip. But this was one of those moments 
where every one of his categories for right and wrong was just absolutely being shattered. What do you do when you're supposed to love everyone, but there is a group who is literally killing your friends and family in front of you? What do you do when you meet people who share your faith, but they hold a racial prejudice that you have been taught is wrong? So I watched my Canadian students become furious at Iraqi Christians because the Iraqis were furious at Muslims. Bud Osborne is a poet from Vancouver, and he writes about this kind of tension, what do you do when, in his poem called Excruciations of Compassion, which is about how painful it is to be compassionate to someone else. I'll just read you an excerpt from that poem. What do you do when the most hated human being in society is the only man you knew who loved you and was your gangster hero stepfather but molested your sister and was convicted of raping a nine-year-old girl? Or what do you do when a woman accused of flaunting contempt for the moral laws on which our society ultimately rests, accused in a full-page sensational suicide and sex scandal, what do you do when this most evil woman is your mother? Well, it's a hell of a lot easier on me to condemn some monster alien stranger and revel in self-righteousness than to have these excruciations of compassion and suffer with the most hated humans the most immoral women, the most extreme violence in a scary and confusing solidarity with the socially damned that burned so furiously in my blood. What do you do if God sends you to ISIS? That's what the story of Jonah is really about. And suddenly it doesn't seem so crazy that he runs from God's call. Yes, maybe he's afraid of going to Nineveh. Certainly, that would be terribly dangerous. But more than that, he is afraid that the message he's bringing will work. He's afraid that the people will repent and that God, because God is always himself, he is always merciful, always compassionate, He's afraid that God will forgive them. God is excruciatingly compassionate. And it's easier for us to have people fall in clear categories, us and them, right and wrong, good and bad. But God is way more mysterious than good and bad. He is depth of love unfathomable to us. He is power and righteousness, light so strong that evil is absolutely burned up in his presence. God always has excruciations of compassion. He always wants people to turn and live. Is there someone you don't want grace for? I'm sure there is. There must be. As we start this new year, I want to challenge you to pray a really simple prayer with me and see what happens. 
I want us to pray that God would expand our capacity to love other people, to expand our capacity for compassion. Just see what will grow in us as he makes more room for that kind of tension. We need the Spirit of God. We need the power that raised Christ from the dead to transform us into people willing to have excruciations of compassion, willing to go wherever we're called. So I'd like to pray for us this morning. Um, If you would pray for me, we'll ask for these things. God, thank you for who you are, for being the same through all time and for all people. Thank you that you are more merciful and compassionate than I can even imagine. Thank you for being patient with me as I stumble along trying to follow you. God, as we study this story and start this new year, would you in your mercy expand our capacity to love other people? Would you expand our capacity for compassion? By the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, would you literally make new space in us to welcome and love the people you love? We ask those things for our salvation and for your glory. Amen.